This is The Fall Line. All season long, we've talked about one of the most important tools in cold case resolution, forensic investigative genetic genealogy. If you've listened to the show for a while, you've heard us cover that topic on a number of occasions, like having guests on to explain the difference between more classic DNA testing and the newer profiles that are used in genealogical work. We've also featured a number of genealogists who've spoken about the roadblocks in cold cases and how they can be overcome, and even to discuss their own work on some of the John and Jane Doe cases featured on our show. The organizations you're probably most familiar with, the ones we talk about the most, are the DNA Doe Project, the Trans Doe Task Force, and Redgrave Research. Lee Bingham Redgrave and Dr. Anthony Redgrave began their professional careers as volunteers with DDP, then went on to develop the grassroots organization Transdo Task Force, which eventually became a nonprofit. It also has a missing persons arm, LAMP, which we featured on the show in its own standalone episode. Redgrave Research is the professional arm of their work, where they take on forensic and non-forensic cases, which might include adoption or as in the case of my own family, locating an unknown parent. Redgrave research were featured in my book, Lay Them to Rest, because they did the FIGG work that successfully identified Ina Jane Doe, a homicide victim. Her case had been cold since 1993. Though the team's work identified Ina Jane Doe as Susan Menard Lund, a young mother from Tennessee, there are still many questions in her case and mysteries concerning her disappearance. You can read more about that in my book. After working with the Redgraves on that case, and watching their work on another well-known case, the Canadian Babes in the Woods John Doe's, we decided to ask the Redgraves to join us for the final episode of this season, to tell you more about forensic investigative genetic genealogy, and also more about their own work. Like many of the scientists we feature here, it's a human-first approach to unidentified person's identification, with both victims and families in mind. The Redgraves are a little unusual, as they're one of the few married couples working in FIGG. They also focus on a collaborative, team-based approach to case-solving, and they have preferred that method since they began. They got involved very early on in the forensic side of genetic genealogy, before many of us were even aware that it was a possibility. We sat down to discuss many things. Their work, their law enforcement training program, when they first became concerned about the cases of trans and gender-expansive individuals, and their interest in education and victim advocacy. We also discussed some of the casework that we did together. We began the interview with Anthony explaining how they first became involved in genealogical work. So most forensic investigative genetic genealogists I know started out as genealogists, but you two are younger than a lot of the earliest pioneers in this field. Were you also involved in more classic genealogy when the first tests came on the market that would allow for genetic genealogy? How did you get interested in genealogy in the first place? Both of us have our own uh genealogical mysteries that we've been trying to solve for a long time. I didn't know my father when I was when I was growing up. I had like a couple of clues to go off of and I basically like spent every couple of years googling to try to find him. Um and Lee was adopted. So we got our start with traditional genealogy to solve our own problems. But neither of us really took a DNA test until significantly later. Um, for, for a number of reasons, you know, some of it was that it was cost prohibitive. Some of it was that we were, you know, 
worried because we were uneducated on the topic at the time. And a big one for me was just that I uh, I didn't know what the test was going to turn out like because I'm not only transgender, but I was born intersex. So I didn't know what was going to come back. And, you know, what actually put me over the edge into wanting to do that was twofold. Well, threefold, really. One was that my doctor wanted to have me do DNA karyotyping that wasn't going to be covered by health insurance. So I tried to DIY it myself. Because your first one was inconclusive. Yeah, the first one was inconclusive. Uh, Second was that uh, after I'd figured out who my father was and found my father's side of the family, there was the hanging mystery of who my great-grandfather was on my mother's side that no one had been able to figure out. And it became apparent that was only going to be solved with DNA. And then the other thing that put me over the edge was finding out about the Melungeon DNA project. If you're unfamiliar... Melungeons are a small, distinct population in Appalachia with multiracial roots. There are several family surnames generally tied into Melungeon history, and there's ongoing research into the history of Melungeons in Appalachia, thus the DNA project. As an adoptee, Lee was also drawn to genealogy, but was, at least at first, a little hesitant about making the jump to the use of DNA as a tool. So I was adopted as an infant and um, was able to solve my own mysteries using traditional search methods and traditional genealogy. And then I started helping other adoptees as well. And it was very apparent as soon as DNA testing became commercially available that in order to stay current, in my skill set that I would have to learn about DNA. But I was actually very nervous about that. Um, It really freaked me out. And uh, it was Anthony who taught me about it after he learned about it for the reasons he just described. And then we learned how to apply it to cases together. We learned how to apply it to adoptee cases first and we learned how to decode our own DNA and read it in different ways and pull different information out of it. And um, it just led us in this direction that we didn't expect at all when we began. I'd love to talk about that part because um, the, the sort of transition into forensic genetic genealogy for you two. When you became interested in that aspect of the field, how you heard about it, I know for a lot of lay people, myself included, it was the identification of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, where really that hit the scene. But I know that you were clued in a lot earlier than that. Yes, um, this is Lee talking. Yes, we already had had at least two case solves at the DNA Doe Project before the Joseph D'Angelo case was announced and before he was arrested. Uh, we began working on cases with the DNA with the DNA Doe project approximately four or five months before that happened. Um, we heard about the field through a friend who listened to true crime podcasts and keeps up on Reddit and the true crime subreddits and things like that and managed to get in the door um, as two of the first dozen or so genealogists of the DNA Doe project. So 
We have covered the basics of forensic investigative genetic genealogy on the show many times before, so I will not make you explain that again. You've been kind enough to do it. But I would love to talk about how you began both branches of your work, um, and that work being both the Transdo Task Force and also Redgrave Research. We founded Redgrave Research in 2020 after we left the DNA Doe Project. Um, we wanted to be able to take a wider variety of cases, as well as developing our training program, the Forensic Genealogy Training for Law Enforcement, or FGA Forelli for short, because we can we can take on a number of cases, but it's that whole teach a man to fish sort of thing. There's too many cases for the people who are currently doing it now to be able to work. So we wanted to contribute to education. Um, the Transdo Task Force was not an official entity so much as a grassroots movement until we established ourselves as a nonprofit in 2021. And we did that so that we would be able to do more fundraising to cover more casework because as uh, as a nonprofit, we can access uh, different grants and fundraising tools for cases that are already uh, at a disadvantage because we can start the conversation with a department of, hey, do you know this case that has been neglected and we can help you with? They'll say yes to that, but then the next problem is money. So we wanted to eliminate another uh, hurdle for these very important, very special cases. So you've talked to me and many other media outlets about your growing concern regarding the cases of trans and gender expansive unidentified decedents and how that led to the establishment of the Transdo Task Force. But I'd love for you to tell me more about that in detail here. What were you seeing? What were you concerned about? And how did you want to address that need? This is Anthony again. Uh, so what we saw initially was that there were a lot more cases than we expected to find. So when we asked the question of uh, what would it look like if there was a trans person who was unidentified, how would that get handled? How would it be different? When we started looking into that, we found so many more cases than we could have possibly imagined of unidentified deceased people who may have been uh, trans or gender variant in some way. We thought we'd find just a couple or a few. We, we figured most of them would be resolved because we see so many stories already about trans people becoming victims. So we were absolutely astonished when we kept finding more and more unidentified victims, both in the U.S. and around the world. Um, this continued to happen once we set up a submission form for the public to alert us of cases. And at that point, it became abundantly clear that this was going to be a lot of work and we needed to assemble a team and officialize it. We've done an entire episode on the Transdo Task Force LAMP database, and LAMP, of course, is LGBTQ plus accountability for missing and murdered persons, and we'll link that in the show notes too. But that's not the only work that you're focused on. I briefly mentioned Redgrave Research, where you do have a law enforcement training program that you have recently revamped. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what that entails? The FG Forelli program, which is Forensic Genealogy Training for Law Enforcement, has a couple of components to it. The 
most visible one is the uh, self-paced online course, which gives a foundational understanding of how forensic genetic genealogy works. And that's available to law enforcement and adjacent professionals such as medical examiners, anthropologists, coroners, and other criminal justice professionals and students. Um, something that we do through FG Forelli, and that I'd like to do a lot more of, is uh, hybrid online and in-person trainings. So we'll have a group of students from a law enforcement office or a department forming a new cold case unit or a group of departments who want to hop on board the same training together. They can do the online course first and then be prepared to work together on one of their own cases with our guidance for an in-person workshop. I did one of these workshop sessions out in Ventura County, California over the summer, and it was really exciting and really engaging and just overall really amazing experience. Um, the workshop was hosted by the Ventura County Sheriff's Office, but they invited nearby departments to participate. So it ended up being a group of about 17 to 20 people from four or five different departments who were all working together on the same case during the training. I know you were both involved in solving many cases when you volunteered with the DNA Doe Project, probably more than we could cover in a single episode. But right now, I'd love to talk about some of the more publicized John and Jane Doe solves that you've been involved with as the Trans Doe Task Force or Redgrave Research Forensic Services. So this is Lee. As Anthony was just discussing, we're able to provide ongoing case assistance to some of our former law enforcement students who have been working on very difficult cases. So one of the cases we worked on for quite a long time was a very difficult perpetrator case that some of our former students were working on very diligently. Uh, two young women, Lisa Gondek and Rachel Zendejas, were assaulted and murdered by the same perpetrator a few months apart from each other in California in 1981. And these detectives worked without giving up for a couple of years on this case. It was absolutely one of the most difficult cases we've worked and we've assisted on. And uh, we're so proud of them for their hard work, and we're really honored to have assisted in that. We are especially grateful to have helped with resolving the case of Bill Lewis, formerly known as Jasper County John Doe, who was a victim of serial killer Larry Eiler in 1982. Bill's case was particularly touching, and his family is the sweetest family, and we thank them so much, and we think of them often. Uh, also similar with Harry, who was another case that we worked, uh, whose family requested that his last name be withheld, but they graciously shared his first name and photo with the public. And their situation was so difficult, but they were so grateful to everyone who helped to be them to be able to finally lay him to rest and, um, you know, sent thank yous to the team and everything. And these cases really stay with us and mean a lot to us. And the families stay with us, too. And, and they mean a lot to us as well. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the most high-profile case Redgrave Research has been involved with is the Babes in the Woods. It was one of the most emotionally affecting cases, too, because it involved the deaths of two young children. Ali summarized their involvement for us. This was a historic case from Vancouver from the 1950s, approximately. We didn't really know at the time when we took the case what exactly we were going to find in the DNA. 
Um, the number of people whose hands touched this case over the years, the number of different methods used to try to crack it were astounding. It was one of the biggest mysteries in Canadian history. And it's totally wild to know that we were able to help identify these little boys. And we have copies of the only known pictures of David and Derek up in our office. And with the Transdo Task Force, we have several cases that are in various stages of lab process, and we hope to have another out to work uh, genetic genealogy on very soon. However, thanks to our collaboration with Victor and the few folks who help us with the LAMP database, we've been able to help resolve many cases that we don't usually publicize, but we do usually list them in our year review post to the best of our ability. For listeners who haven't read my book, there's something I should mention that readers tell me, something that really amazes them. After the long journey of identifying Ina Jane Doe, her DNA profile was successfully developed by Astrea Labs and then uploaded to GEDmatch Pro. Once her profile batched, which means that it processed, so it could be compared to other DNA profiles voluntarily uploaded for comparison, the team at Redgrave Research was able to identify Ina Jane Doe as Susan Menard Lund in six hours. It's amazing for me to think about that even today. The story's in my book, but when you hear that figure, six hours, it probably seems like a piece of cake. As we discussed in this interview, things are a little more complicated than that. Lee and I talked about the process during our interview. One thing Lee and I have talked about is that the six hours, while being incredibly impressive to me and anyone I've told to this point, is a little deceiving because even though that's a short period of time, um, the work that goes into that is pretty massive. But We'll go through some questions so that listeners can better understand why this identification was so impressive and why identifications can be more or less difficult and what factors can affect that. So first, when you're working on an identification, I know you really hope to see as a match something that's at least in the triple digits Centimorgan wise. How common is that to see when you open GEDmatch and what do you do if there are only really low matches? This is Lee again. So we really celebrate, and I mean celebrate, when we see anything in the triple digits at all on GEDmatch. With a white case, we expect it a little bit more frequently, but in general, if we get more than, you know, if we get over triple digits, we are very excited. Um, that's quite different from many genetic genealogists who are perhaps used to numbers they get from ancestry results. So as you said, we are only allowed to use GEDmatch and sometimes family tree DNA. And we're only allowed to see matches who have specifically opted into law enforcement matching. So this means that usually our data pool is significantly smaller than people who are using Ancestry or something similar to solve an adoptee case or to just look at their own DNA and their cousin matches. It's pretty unusual for us to see such a high match as we saw in Sue's case, even though she is white and of European descent. If there are only low matches, though, we will keep trying. We'll never stop trying. We will 
do things like sleep though <laughs> because when we see such a high match we're like we're not sleeping we're staying up and solving this right now and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't um sometimes we think we're going to solve it that night and then it takes you know three or four days or a week but when we have a team that's a really good team and is really communicative it makes it go faster so if there are only low matches we keep trying but we focus more on where the matches match each other in addition to how much they match each other it's a process called segmentology or segment triangulation we have several methods of data visualization that help us to see the, the places that people match in their DNA. And studying those DNA segments is just called segmentology. So it's the study of the segments. And triangulation is when you have more than two segments that match each other in the same place uh, cross matches. So if you have a theory, you have to have triangulation to hold that theory up. It's that whole three-legged stool thing. So we focus more on that if there are very low matches. I and mean, it's a lot more, it's a lot more grindy work. And if there's a high match, that can sometimes be deceiving. So we have to um we have to take every case as an unknown. We can't expect that any case is going to go a certain way at all, just based on its profile. What are some other really common difficulties that investigative genetic genealogists run into? This is Anthony. So if you have that one really high match, but they don't triangulate with another match at a significant amount, that high match is only going to help you so much because you can't reliably narrow down that branch of the DNA match's family to focus on. So also, if a DNA match and an unidentified person have more than one set of ancestors in common, it can cause them to share more DNA with each other than average. Uh, having more than one common ancestor couple is the result of endogamy, which is the process of intermarriage within a small geographic, ethnic, or religious community. It's not an unusual or bad thing. I've got a bunch of it in my own tree and I turned out all right. Um, but if it happens repeatedly over several generations, it can make the relationship's estimates unreliable. In short, uh, high matches may appear closer than they really are. And additionally, if an unknown DNA profile comes from an underrepresented population, which in terms of genealogy databases, pretty much anybody who isn't white and of European descent, there'll be gaps that we won't have information to fill. If you're talking about a forensic case too, then you're going to be dealing with things like degraded DNA. A direct-to-consumer DNA test kit will have a stabilizer that will keep the DNA sample fresh until it gets to the lab. With forensic cases, especially cold and old cases, you're usually working with genetic material that has been recovered anywhere from days to years post-mortem and stored in any number of ways which you may or may not be made aware of. Things like defleshing skeletal remains by boiling or the decedent being discovered to be embalmed after exhumation will damage the available genetic information in the sample. So in Sue's case, 
there was actually a very high centimorgan match right off the bat, 432, roughly, if I remember. So I'd love to ask you a few questions about that. First, I'd love for you to describe, and I know there are a couple options here, the kind of relationship that could be, generally speaking, and what that signals to you in terms of how quickly a solve might come, and if there are still possible issues that can come up, even if you do have that high of a match. So a 432 centimorgan match has a 82% chance of being a great great aunt or uncle, a half great aunt or, or uncle, a half first cousin, a first cousin once removed, a half great niece, a half great nephew, great great niece or nephew, uh, according to the shared centimorgan tool at dnapainter.com. Now that leaves a lot of options when you're talking about a completely unknown person. If we have an age estimate and postmortem interval and we can determine how close in age the unidentified might be to the DNA match, we can narrow that down a bit, but with cold cases, a lot of these estimations were done with now outdated standards or with insufficient data to give anything more than a very broad window. A uh, 432 centimorgan match is fantastic in an adoptee search, but not sometimes not as informative in a forensic case. We had matches this high and higher when we were working on the Joseph Henry Loveless case with the DNA Doe Project, and we had an incredibly broad estimate of when he may have been born when we started. In fact, the actual relationships between him and his DNA matches were at the very least three times removed which doesn't even show up on dna painter that meaning uh if you have a first cousin three times removed that means that one of you your common ancestor is going to be your grandparents but the other one it's going to be your great great grandparents so that's the, the removals are the generation difference between you and your cousin and since he was born like so much earlier than anybody who was even capable of taking a DNA test. <laughs> uh, it, it made things look real funny and uh, definitely plays into the caveat of just because you have a high match doesn't necessarily mean this is going to be easy. <laughs> so a couple of times now, um, as we've been talking, you've mentioned um, having a really great team to work on a case. And so I think this is a really great time to talk about how you do work on cases. It's a process that I actually described kind of in detail um, in my book, but I think listeners will find it really interesting to hear about because it's collaborative. So Lee has told me before that a lot of genealogists tend to work alone or maybe in pairs, but tell me more about how you work and how does that shape the process of how a case gets solved? So Anthony and I started out working together as a team unofficially before we were ever on a team together, and we really couldn't imagine it any other way. No one person is ever going to have every skill and every specialty and know how to access every resource, and absolutely no one person is ever going to catch every single detail unless they are working painfully slowly. So if we want to you know, work through these cases at a, a good pace and be able to, um, you know, give good reports back to the departments, having a team is ideal. Even when working on a team, if one of us locks in on a match or on a branch of a tree 
and get it gets tunnel vision about it someone else will be able to say hey you know you need to back up and look at the big picture let's let's go back to the team leader and figure out what we should really be focusing on having a small well-oiled well-managed team is in our opinion the best way to solve any problem and especially a forensic case did anything surprise you um, about the process of Sue's identification? And this could be in terms of your own genealogical process, um, the DNA work you did, or even anything we did um, when we were working on the final steps of, you know, working towards trying to confirm. I think that what we were the most surprised by were the things that the team and also you continued to uncover related to her missing persons case. Um, this was not a particularly um, unusual genealogy case, but it is certainly a very unusual case. And the genealogy was, of course, the kind of doorway to opening that you know flood of information that started happening. And that was what was was more surprising because sometimes you'll just identify someone and that's it. In the book, readers get to see what actually happens when genealogists have a tentative identification. But I asked Anthony to explain that for our listeners, too. So the very next thing we do once we have a candidate for identification, which is, you know, what we call it standardly because, you know, it's not an official identification until police are done with it. Uh, we toss it to the team and we say, disprove this. Um, this is one of the very best reasons to have a team, in our opinion. Uh, so if in the team's attempts to disprove the theory, they end up proving it further, then we would begin preparing a report for the agency about those findings. Um, and then that would get passed on to the agency in a secure manner for them to take it across the finish line and uh, confirm that potential identification through uh, conventional means such as SDR testing, uh, interviews with the family, and other evidence that, that they can turn up. I know there are some extra steps that you take. Um, specifically as a company or as the transfer task force that have to do with the family side of things versus the law enforcement side of things, which really has a set, you know, set of steps. So can you talk about those? Yeah, this is Anthony. Um, so after we have confirmation of an identification, we will offer to the family via law enforcement contact a printable pedigree family tree, something that like, looks nice and artistic that can be printed and or framed as they wish. Uh, we'll also provide a genealogical report that's more standard and less forensic sounding, photos if we have them. And we can also be on hand to assist the notifying officers in explaining to the family how we arrived at this conclusion and how the process works and everything. One thing I appreciated about the press conference I attended for Sue's identification was that Anthony, who did a video presentation, went through and explained how Sue was identified and really broke down the process of how identification is achieved in really simple and clear terms that was really easy for me to understand. And I was able to quote and discuss that directly in the book. But more importantly to me, it was also available for anyone who was watching at home and for Sue's family who attended. Can you talk to me a little about why that education aspect is important to you? 
Yeah, the the educational aspect of this work was actually the subject matter for my doctoral dissertation. So I conducted a study on the needs, fears, and misconceptions of different stakeholders in the forensic genetic genealogy process, including law enforcement, forensic genetic genealogists, and families of missing and murdered and formerly unidentified people, and DNA test consumers. And What I discovered, long story short, is that people are more scared when they don't have accurate or complete information. Big surprise. People don't even know that HIPAA protects all of your genetic information, and it's been that way since 2015. It's an uphill battle to educate specifically the public on how this works and how it's not actually causing any harm to them whatsoever. Um. There are plenty of people in marginalized communities that have very valid and real fears about what might be done with their genetic information. Um, And those fears should absolutely be acknowledged, but it should also be made very clear the benefit to all of society, especially those who, uh, for whatever reason, their cases have been deprioritized, what can be gained from forensic genetic genealogy and uh, education is is absolutely the the front line of of this battle to get this giant backlog of unidentified cases solved. Scientists don't often connect with victims' families and survivors as part of their jobs, but there are some unique aspects to Transdo Task Force work, so I asked Lee to discuss some of those initiatives, including work with an outside consulting firm. I know you both know that I've continued to work with Sue Lund's family for the past year and a half now, I think, primarily on her homicide case, and that's an aspect of my work that I really love and really value. I know with all of my friends who are forensic experts, generally at least, you don't work directly with families afterward because there are necessary professional or legal distances there. But I know that in your case, um, you've recently found some avenues to do some additional victim-focused work that might not be in the same way that I do it. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. We do not involve ourselves with the family unless the family wants us to become involved and indicates that to law enforcement. And we do not involve ourselves in contacting the family unless law enforcement indicates to us that they would like our assistance in that. So in those couple of instances, we have had experiences where we have been directly involved with families, but only under those circumstances. But we also have the Transdo Task Force, which operates very differently, and especially with working with missing persons cases. And doing that, you end up interacting with families and friends and chosen families a lot more often. And that has really thrown into uh, relief for me, uh, especially that we need to be very careful about the way that we're packaging and presenting these case solves and this information. And that if people are going to be consuming it as entertainment, that we not exploit the victims' families or the victims, obviously. That's especially important with already marginalized people who are victims and are already 
uh, marginalized people who are our family members and might not trust law enforcement and probably don't for good reason. So a couple of different things have uh, come about. I've joined a um, board of consultants under uh, the direction of Lenora Clare, who is um, someone who is an expert on stalking, and she also works with the Los Angeles uh, DA's office, um, working with directly with victims. And she has started a consultancy firm for media and for events. So if you are a you know true crime vendor of some kind, you can hire Lenora's company to advise you on how to do so respectfully on how to present the information you'd like to present respectfully and um, not cause damage in the process finally we discussed our shared focus doe cases and what we most want the public to understand about the unidentified as our listeners know we have spent the last five weeks covering the cases of unidentified decedents in tennessee and really stressing to our listeners that these are the cases of missing people, whether they have official reports or not. And they're not just bones. They're not objects. They are subjects of their own stories. What do you want the public to understand about Doe cases that perhaps is not discussed enough, whether it's in media or even when we talk about case solves? So what I would love for people to understand about doe cases is is exactly what you just said these these are real people these are people who live who have families and even if even if their families of origin don't necessarily want them back there were still people somewhere in life who loved them from the perspective of somebody working with their dna it can get really it can get actually really intimate without even knowing who these people are there are so many people whose lives are touched and affected by being involved in these cases, whether as a family member of an unidentified person or as an investigator. There are so many, there's so many hands involved in solving these cases. And we, we tend to be the last in a long line of attempts, but that doesn't mean necessarily that we're the most important. It just means that we got the, we got the job done by, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. And uh, it is a team effort, no matter if that team is working asynchronously or not, there's a bunch of also unknown and unidentified people behind the scenes who never get credit and so we'd like to just make sure that others who have worked these cases who maybe don't get a big shot at being in the spotlight because they are not the fancy forensic genetic genealogy team that got the press for it you know we all worked we all worked hard and we acknowledge everybody who works hard on all of these cases you can learn more about tdtf lamp and redgrave research at their website and much much more about the case we worked on together in my book Lay them to rest. The identification of Susan Menard Lund, formerly Ina Jane Doe, is just one piece of that story. If you're interested in learning more about forensic investigative genetic genealogy and all the other ways John and Jane Doe's are identified, I do break down that science for you, illustrated through some of the most well-known cases in the United States, along with many other cases that you probably haven't heard of. 
And Sue's case still needs attention too. You'll be hearing more about that very soon. The Fall Line's next full season begins in February. We're bringing you the complex stories of two missing mothers and two daughters whose decade-long searches have brought them to very unexpected places. Homicide cases, unidentified persons investigations, and even solving the missing persons cases of other families. In the meantime, we'll have a mid-season special for you in January, so be sure to join us then. Remember, our ad-free feed is available through Patreon and Apple Premium. It provides episodes a day early and, of course, without ads. And 100% of that money pays for therapies for families who've been on the show. We've been able to provide that service for almost two years, and we hope to continue it for as long as that help is needed. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research assistance from Brian Warders and Anna Luria. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka.